Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Eleanor spoke with Jamie Glazebrook, who is the executive producer of Peaky Blinders. Jamie spoke about all the exciting things we can expect from the upcoming series of Peaky Blinders. He talked about whether we're living in the golden age of television and also the issues that we face with just too much choice in streaming. This is all about our attempt to broaden the podcast to take in TV and theatre, and we really hope you enjoy it. Jamie, welcome to Always Take Notes. Uh, So we are here in your lovely little Soho office on... Little? Well... It's enormous. Well, I suppose the the building itself is sort of small and tall. it's little, it's little. Uh, You can't fit much in Soho, to be fair, but it's beautiful. Um, And we are in the exciting few months lead up to the fifth series of Peaky Blinders. We are. um, Of which you are executive producer. Mm -hmm. And you have been since it officially launched in 2013. Mm. Yes. So can you tell me a little bit about the day that it was greenlit? Do you remember it? I do remember. I, I certainly remember Steve coming in and saying to us, I've got an idea. And pitching and he had clearly been thinking about this for a long time and when he was talking this whole thing came alive in our heads I remember that and I remember equally going into the BBC and it just seemed to happen very quickly because people could tell this was all almost fully formed and very then the script took a while to write so what year was this would have been we went into the BBC in um 2010 January 2010 remember it was icy outside it's very snowy Christmas my son had just been born. Oh. Babies are lucky, my boss. My boss said. <laughs> so, um, so we went in, and and that was a quick meeting. You know, yes, sounds great. Steve pitched two ideas, and she's and and we pitched Anne Mensa, who was at the BBC at that point, and she said, "Which do you want to do first? Peaky Blinders." What was the other idea? Um, well, the other idea is still in the air, so I can't say, but it's pretty cool, <laughs> and you know, Gosh, yeah, it's okay. great, yeah. Um, and um. Uh, and and then the scripts w- took a while to come, but when it came, we just thought it was wonderful and um, and submitted straight to BBC. We didn't do any meddling, and neither did BBC. They went straight to the head of drama, and within a very short time, we were sitting down and thinking, let's make this. And there was one note from Ben Stevenson, who was the head of drama, which is, can you bring on the antagonist a bit sooner? And then... Just one note, is that quite rare? Pre- oh, yeah, <laughs> very, very rare. So it was very, very quick. And actually, we did some more. And then, then we developed it more, actually, when we were making it. We started asking questions when it all became a reality. But I have to disappoint and say the champagne moment of green light just doesn't really happen. No. It's certainly with a show of this scale, because even back then, and this problem is worse now, your show costs so much to make per episode that you need to get you know the one broadcaster great they'll be financing most of it or some of it but you need to get someone else in as well to actually fully finance it and then furthermore you need to how are you going to sell to the rest of the world so doing these big scale i don't want to get into immediately into a whole woe is us but doing those big scale shows are going to be they're going to take a different have a different quality because when you see a show like gentleman jack that had to sell to HBO as well. So that's great. It feels to me very British and it suited the BBC, what they wanted to have on and HBO. But more and more those shows where, you know, if you think of seven, eight years ago, you might have had Lark Rise, you know, a show even of that scale would need to have significant other um, broadcaster on board, I think, 
because they're just they're so expensive. It's very expensive making that sort of TV now. And what actors did you already have? And did Stephen have actors no, we didn't, in mind? We didn't. We, we, we didn't. We went in with a script. And this was a wonderful thing, again, that doesn't always happen now, but we went in with just the script and, um, and the lead role wasn't, no one was attached. Quite quickly after that, when, when there was sort of green light was happening um, and we, we know we had a finance plan set up, um, the script got to Killian through his agent and you know this this message came that there was an interest and and we were obviously really keen to meet and Steve and um Karen Manderback who's my boss who um, you know and also an exact producer went and and met him and immediately thought So was wow. Killian for Steve kind of first choice he was someone he'd thought of was, was the, yeah absolutely it was yeah. the first well the message came through and it was like what are we thinking he's perfect Yeah and also I think that look we're so lucky with Killian because he's someone who's both a star and a genius actor and then a total gentleman and, you know, because you, you, we've been working with him for a long time. So, you know, to be all three is, I would imagine, extremely rare. Certainly, when, how often do you see a star who can hold the screen like that, who is also an extraordinary actor who can go to all these different places? You don't, he's so Tommy Shelby, you almost don't see it because it's happened so beautifully. But, you know, Steve quickly realized he could write, put Tommy Shelby through a lot. And, and this guy who was very... Almost you didn't couldn't read him in those first episodes, could you? The face was very, very held. And then he started to smile a bit in the end of that first series. Someone watched it recently and said, I've forgotten how much he smiles in that first series. And then as these, you know, he get, becomes very determined in the second series and then tragedy hits in the third. And you see him goes to these places that we would have never imagined. So interesting. And how did you come on board? How did you know? When did you first meet Steve? I was working with Karen. And so, um, and we were, we we had a background in comedy, as does Steve, and we were developing, we just started, we didn't have an office at that point, we worked from the coffee shop in the top of the Royal Festival Hall. And there was another show that we thought, oh, would Steve, there was something that we had in the air with, with an attachment to HBO, would Steve want to write that? We had a great meeting, that didn't work out, but Steve then called up and said, look, I've got another show I'd like to talk to you about so it really was Steve came and we sat on one of those um, you know tables in the Royal Festival Hall um, was drink- he whispering it in case someone stole his idea like, you know what at that point we were all talked so loudly anyone could have heard our entire slate <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah so 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 we were it was just just perfect timing and you know and Steve at that point was was as was as good as he is now, but he wasn't the superstar, the known superstar that he is now. So we were look, there was luck involved, and also hopefully he could see that we had something. I feel that he, I feel that he came because, you know, you know, with lots of TV offices, you walk through and you see all the lines of BAFTAs and the posters and stuff. And I've never asked him, but I wonder whether there was something quite charming about two uh, very determined people who didn't have an office yet. <laughs> yes, why do you think he came to you then? Rather I think we had a great conversation about this other project and um and it, it was just one that was full of ideas and um and it's very interesting. I think you could see that we would um be very very you know look this has been our, our big thing when the script came through um, Karen and I just thought wow this is so incredible we cannot mess this up this up we have to really honor it in every way possible. And that's what a lot of our work has been in this last sort of 8 years 9 years how to honour those incredible scripts and just get the, you know, 
bring them to screen in the best possible way. Is there something in particular that you remember that sticks in your mind from having read the script for the first time? A scene or a character or the way it was written? Um, I think the, the appearance of Tommy Shelby is exactly like you see it on the screen. As far as I can remember, someone read the script and say, am I wrong? But I think, you know, the way he rides in and that incredible image of the the um, girl blowing the um, powder into the horse. And it felt a very magical and mysterious way to start it. And that whole thing, you think you're in China and then it says Birmingham, England, you know. That that just felt so clearly something different. And the fact that you're on horseback and then you ride through the town as you see in the in the show... And it felt a bit like a Western. So you felt, okay, wow, I'm not watching any period drama. I'm watching a Western. And executive producers, a lot of people don't really know what that means. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you explain for those that don't? Well, it can mean many different things. I see it it myself as a... um, And this is different from TV to movies. But I see it for TV. If you think for Peaky, I've been the first one. Karen and I were the first ones in. Steve sits down and tells us the idea. And we're here all the way through, you know, sitting at the audio um, review and writing the blurb of the DVD, choosing the stills. So I take it very seriously as a sort of guarantor of quality across the whole series. So we are not the the, the sort of hands-on producer of which there's been a different one every series is the one who, wow, they are working hard and they're doing these incredible hours, making these horrible decisions and just really just doing their utmost to get that show made on budgets every series and, and they're on the ground. And we're sort of uh, back, hopefully supporting them and um, helping, you know, choosing the right directors, casting the directors, talking about the actual casting of every series, including who's going to do the music, having all of those conversations. But behind it all is we take so seriously, is series five going to be as brilliant as series one, two, three, four? You know, because we don't want that drop off in quality. Is every episode really interesting? And does it feel like the same show? And you've involved in financing as well. I'm across all those conversations, yeah, yeah. And what is your favourite part of it? Um, well, I'd say the moment when the script comes through is amazing. How long does Steve take to write? Uh, he writes, I suppose, the first couple of episodes take a while, and and I think that he talks, he 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 thinks about them for a long time, and this is not something we talk to each other about because we encourage the process to be. We do everything we can to make it feel as personal as possible. So so it feels that he's been thinking about them. And sometimes we sit and chat about what might come. But I feel often we're like the kind of um, Dr. Watson to his Sherlock Holmes. So there was one episode where we we're like, you know, it'd be interesting. Tommy's starting to um, brew some, you know, get involved in whiskey and, and liquor. And, you know, maybe the prohibition's on. Maybe American thing would be appropriate. And he, he closed his eyes and said, OK, we're going to go to Russia. <laughs> You know, so, you know, just sometimes it's a back and forth and and not really making suggestions, but but placing a context where he'll, you know, I remember very much placing the context where he just took a deep breath and closed his eyes and said, I know what, there's some guns. Tommy's got his hand on some guns. That was quite late in the process. And that actually is the sort of driving story that enables everything to happen in the first series. He's got hold of some guns. 
you're very modest, as I know from our pre-chat before this, <laughs> but are there any suggestions that you can credit yourself with? No, I wouldn't like to with the, um, you know, there's some, uh, I, I, th I think it's really important. They're all, it's, it's a collaborative, you know, it's so, so collaborative. And I'm not on the, I'm not on the floor directing and I'm not there producing and I'm not designing the costumes. I'm sort of so, you know, just this sort of hovering around quite a long way back from the front line. But um, so it's almost sort of choosing the people, helping choose the people who make the choices is part of it. And, and you know, we've been, I think also you're, Obviously, we, we, we think we're good because we really take the story so seriously. But we've also been lucky with some incredible directors. And I've, I think it's been fun realising the kind of the different sense that every series has. Again, this isn't particularly a conversation we had with Steve, but oh, yeah, the series one is like a Western. And series three is like sort of Hitchcockian um, psychodrama where... You know, there's people talking in rooms in country houses about revolutions abroad, and hey, wouldn't it be fun to get a a um, a director not from the UK? Well, we got this wonderful guy Tim Meelans, Belgian, and then oh yeah, series four is down and dirty. Caffrey, David Caffrey, who who directs most of Love Hate, directed most of Love Hate, perfect for that. Just just on the street, run and gun. Series five, um, Anthony. I, you know, I don't want to say too much about it. Perfect casting. What he's done with this material is just, you know, off the scale. And there have been many new stars added to the recent series, such mm -hmm. as Anya Taylor-Joy, for instance, who's kind of hot property right now. She's been in a lot. Have you found that there are actors now coming to you guys asking to be in it? Or how easy are you finding casting big stars now? Well, we've avoided casting big stars for the sake of it, because I think it sort of then pulls you out. So there have been people who have expressed an interest Can who we think are great. I, I don't want to say who, but there's people who have expressed an interest in sometimes in a very direct way and sometimes in an indirect way. And we've thought, hmm. And sometimes people say, I love that show in the press. And you think, hmm, are they saying that they'd like to be invited? But actually, we really are so careful to stay true to the script so it all feels it's the show and it doesn't feel, hey, we've got successful, let's suddenly bring in a famous person. And I really think hopefully that people are all within, feel that they're appropriate within the fabric of the show. So, you know, Anna Taylor-Joy, you'll see her. She's, what's great about her is, you know, without saying anything, she, she, she arrives and you, just the word's forced to be reckoned with, you know? <laughs> what? Because it's been quite, it's been what, two years since the fourth series and it ended yeah. on quite a cliffhanger. What is going to surprise people the most? Um, wow, good question. I think, um, I mean, I think the switch in, uh, this is both, the, this series is both a lot of fun and, you know, visually and the way it's directed is just extraordinary. Um, but I think it's also, again, the heart of it and how you're getting into the inside Tommy Shelby's head and what's happening in that head. A lot of it's been set up. A lot of the what you're going to see, actually, you'll feel, you know, that has been set up in the series four. But um, I think that experience will be, it's a pretty intense series. And will Alfie be returning? 
Alfie was shot on the beach. I know, <laughs> I know, Sorry to spoil. But people Sorry still think that he will return because almost know, every dead character in TV somehow manages they to They do, fall I know, back. they do. But it's a bit like, you know, lots of people, I felt so bad when, you know, Grace was, was killed and we didn't do a big, big funeral and people thought maybe she's alive and she was most definitely not, you know. I remember watching The Bodyguard and just being sure Kitty Hawes had would died, but yeah. obviously they all do. But yeah. no, yeah. Um, okay, so when when Peaky Blinders first aired, it was quite slow to build popularity. Mm-hmm. Um, how was that dealing with not quite knowing if it would really take off? Um, well, we were really... We, we loved the responses. The response was amazing, but... We obviously hoped it would be a bigger audience. So, what was the audience? I think it started. Um, yeah, you know, it started really good. It started over three million. I think the first episode got quite a high rating, and then lots of people tuned out in that first episode. We kind of expected it because it was all rock and roll and different, and it was something like that hadn't been on BBC Two, so that it wasn't been a surprise. For one series, or yeah, for one series, and then I remember. I was thinking, okay, we're coming back for series two. I think the last episode got about 1.6 mil. And what's the kind of target for being re- for being commissioned for another I, series? I honestly, well, this is what's so cool about BBC. It's not really about that. It's about the BBC take really, really seriously if they know that they can't... It's very rare you can make a show that everybody likes. But if you make a show that some people really love, they're so happy about that. Just in, just as if there's some lots of people really hate something, they're sad about and it. BBC so, Two is a bit more adventurous with it. Yeah, content. and so BBC just takes very, very seriously: is the audience really enjoying this? And they have various indicia, and I don't know how they get them. Where it it, it was that lots of audience felt this is really quite unusual and extraordinary. So you know they stuck by us, which was brilliant. But I remember the second series, we thought we're going to start this series, no holds barred. If you remember, the series two starts with, you know, there's an explosion and there's a wonderful fight in a bar, the Eden Club, and just loads of stuff goes on and ends with an amazing cliffhanger. And that got exactly the same rating as the previous episode, the end of series one. And I remember feeling very sad about that because I thought we're going to come out running. So it's been a slow build, but it's been wonderful. I think that the fans the audience in Birmingham have stuck with us and they they were in early have you noticed a bigger audience in Birmingham than say elsewhere obviously I don't know how it's spread but I think our, our Birmingham audience are really loyal and you know Steve's from Birmingham yeah, and he course. takes Birmingham so seriously he loves the place and it's really important that you know screenings are there he's he absolutely adores Birmingham and um no, it's his hymn to Birmingham, really. Do you remember the night that it aired? Were you all together kind of scouring Twitter for No, 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 no. <laughs> no. Oh, I'm not that bad. <laughs> so how, no. did, how did you get an inkling that fans loved it then? I think that we noticed that, that there was a, you know, the sales were quite good. People were talking about, about, about it when it was off air. Do you read the reviews? I, I do. I do read the reviews, but you have to take them not seriously because... You you know how you see things that you really liked that get bad reviews and vice versa. So you have to apply that to yourself, which mostly means when you get a great review, just try and don't take it to heart too much. And if you get a ditto and you get a bad one. Are there any bad kind of searing criticisms burnt into your mind forever? 
No, 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 there aren't. I think that people thought it was... I think that there was a lot of people who thought it was ridiculous. Um, but it's heightened. Yeah. But it's heightened. So you sort of thought, yeah, it's heightened. And so if you, you sort of have to adjust to it. Yeah. And I think it's wonderful. Lots of people have adjusted, but it's not like lots of other things. So, yeah, it is, it is heightened. You're in a world where, look, Steve proposed a world. He said, I want to be like your 10-year-old boy in this world. Or a 10-year-old, you know, it's a, you look out and everything you see, you sort of make magical. And everyone's good looking and the, the cars are really shiny and the horse is just incredible. And if you see, that's the way we've portrayed it. It's, it's everything's, you know, the cars are so unbelievably good looking. And you come out and it's not gritty. Birmingham is all sort of like castles in the air, isn't it? It's all the sort of slightly heightened computer graphic, but not too much. But it's there. You can see there's an element of fantasy about it. And that was always the intention. Were there any kind of small, seemingly inconsequential details that either yourself or Steve insisted upon that you think is actually re- really kind of added to the show or that maybe that people won't realise? Um, no, I mean, I think what, what seemed to be a small thing, but our first director, Otto, just responded to it so wonderfully, was when Steve said, like, in their mind, that we really wanted to avoid what we would referred to as you know the period drama stink you know that kind of feeling of oh we're in a oh we're in a historical drama and steve said yeah because in their heads they're not in one in their heads everything's happening fast and so on and 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 the way otto took that and then thought okay we're going to go with nick cave and jack white which is great it was exactly and and we didn't know sitting down that we were going to listen to that in the edit that Mm. was a very great experience because it was such a surprise but it just felt totally right and it's been upgraded you don't mind me using the word to BBC One mm-hmm. for the fifth series. How important is that? To us, it's great because more audience would see it. To BBC, have been amazing because it's the same show. It's it's not. There's absolutely no change to go to one. It's so it's as you know, every, all the values within the show are the same. Why now though? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I think I think it's a sort of internal. You know, BBC have a number of places where they can put drama. And um, if you're on BBC One, you'll hopefully more people will tune in. If it creates more space on two for new things, yeah. BBC Two is a wonderful place to launch a drama because you're sort of not exposed. So it means um, you've kind of hit the mainstream now in terms of appeal. yeah, and it's become slowly more mainstream, hasn't it? It sort of doesn't look like a it doesn't look like a cult hit anymore. Our feeling is we didn't make it to be a cult hit. We wanted it to be just really mainstream. We didn't want it to be, there's, the intention is never to be quirky. The intention has been to make as many people as possible go, wow, I, you know, age between, you know, uh, late teens to, you know, octogenarians. Wow, there's something in here for me. Do you know the um, kind of statistics for the demographic of your kind of core audience? It's, um, no, not really, because I know that online lots of young people watch it. By young people, I mean, you know, whatever the, the you know, 18 to 34 or below people probably who shouldn't be watching it but I know on BBC Two it was an older audience so how that all fits together I don't know but the aim is everybody it sounds so greedy but that is the aim is is you know you don't I don't think you should go some a wonderful writer Joe Ahern said you know you don't go out looking to make a cult hit you go out to looking for broad and then it might be that a certain section of the audience find you 
What do you find is kind of the, ma- the main question all fans ask you or tend to ask you more than... When is Series 5 going to be released? <laughs> you, said, you still weren't <laughs> able to tell me earlier. No. <laughs> Autumn, you said. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> um, and anything about characters or plot in particular? No, do you know what? The, pl- the fans know that you just want to watch the show. You don't want to have it spoiled, actually. And, and the press are brilliant at that. You know, when we see, if we show a press screening of something, no one says what happens. Mm. And um, you know, there's certainly been an incident of I don't know, a page of something was was left on a on a location. Someone found it, just folded it up without reading it. Without reading it, I think it included the, the news of Grace's death. By the way, someone just folded it up without reading How it and gave it to a it? newspaper. Well, because they, the the news just, never got out, so they might have read it. But they what we heard was, I love this show. I don't want to be spoiled. Yeah. It's pretty cool. And you've had, I remember Steve saying that he's had um, some unusual celebrity fans, ASAP Rocky, mm-hmm. came up to him at a Christmas meal in a restaurant and almost missed his yeah. flight. because Snoop he was Dog. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Any others that we don't know of? I think a lot when he goes to LA, I think a lot, and I've seen a lot online. And it's, uh, and, and sometimes it's like I saw some amazing thing of sort of fancy dress party in LA. Um, oh, who was it? Anyway. You know, a, a lot. But they're not surprising, really, because we're trying to make such yeah. a mainstream show. I guess it's slightly surprising when Americans are so into it because it does feel like a British show. Well, this is this is what we'll get onto. This is part of the job and part of what British TV needs to do now. And, you know, we're hoping to do with other shows is to do something that's got a British identity. But in the end, you're talking about men and women. And it sounds so obvious but actually, those what they're doing isn't particularly British. Mm. You know, they're, they're, it's not exclusively because there's men. What, what is it really about? It's about men, the effect of violence on men and how it destroys men and everyone. You know, Tommy's been affected. Yeah, and exactly. Matthew and Tommy's shit. been the recipient of violence in, in war. Mm. And you're seeing that ripple effect through so many people, men and women. And it's not very nice. And I think everyone can look at that and think, I, you know, you see that even if you're not, if you've, uh, if you've actually experienced it, I could imagine it's extremely resonant. But even if you've not, you see a truth in it. And, and talking about kind of the industry in that way, I've, I've noted, have you, have you seen Sex Education on, mm-hmm. on Netflix? Yeah. And it was kind of odd because it's a, sort of a British show, but it was made to look as if it was kind of filmed in America like mm-hmm. like the the school was like a high school in America and but that was sort of I think I think that was a choice because they were trying to in their the head it was the high school thing but but I think equally you could do a show that looks very English but it also speaks to people all over well, you know Downton was very people loved watching in America mm-hmm. it was looked very British but I wonder if it was a bit more because they thought that if they didn't ha- if they didn't appeal to the American audience in that way of making them kind of see an environment they understood and knew that mm. they just wouldn't watch it and I wonder how conscious it was of Netflix to kind of straddle both audiences in that way and whether you yeah. feel pressure to really grab the American audience I don't I, I think the the key is always to find that that moment of it's hard with it's easier with present day because you can find stories that just go everywhere and and feel you know a teenager living now will in the UK will be experiencing lots of pressures that a teen in the states will be but i think that with period it's harder because sometimes it looks as though it's very exclusively you know i think we're very lucky the way we get these quite historical moments in of of 
what happened with Churchill and details of these gang wars and so on. Um, but uh, but I think generally, if you go for a well-written characters that have universals, people will watch you all over. You know, um, if you think of show like Vikings, that's watched all over the world. Mm-hmm. Game of Thrones, I know it's fantasy, but it's all a British cast pretty much. People, that, that's not a problem. Yeah. It's it's all to do with it's all to do with really that quality of can you are you invited inside the head of that lead character and that's mm. yeah I won't go on about it but that's really the trick of what Steve does and of what we do when we make it is that it's an ensemble you know a wonderful ensemble but the lead character is Tommy Shelby and partly when you're watching it you're not watching him you're you're kind of we're trying to give you the experience of being him. So that music you're hearing, that's not us illustrating. That's what's in his head. And that's a small difference, but it's a huge difference. Because, you know, sometimes a score can be a little bit like the, um, you know, the uh, minstrel with Brave Brave Sir Robin. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I hear a lot of those scores. We're not doing that because actually what was inside Brave Brave Sir Robin's head was, I'm freaking out. <laughs> I don't want to go to war. And we'll be playing what's in his head. So sometimes Tommy Shelby's hearing rock and roll, but sometimes he's hearing you and whose army. Because mm. he's just thinking, oh, when is this going to end? How, when do I, when do I, it's my wedding day and I still have to, you know, kill and burn people. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So, and, and so he's not a happy man. So that's a massive, that's a massive distinction. And I think that when you're experiencing someone, so you don't, you're not watching it, you're in it. It's like, oh my God, I'm going to be Tommy Shelby for a moment. And it feels also... Why we? Why do we like watching? You, there's a freedom to being Tommy Shelby. So there's a sense of, you know, and there's a moral challenge to it as well because we know what he is, and it's and, and when you think about it, you know, I think where we, I, I was really surprised at the end of series four, you know, Karen and I thought, wow, he's really at a low here because, you've seen him, he's 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 you know you remember he makes his brother youngest brother blind someone. He's the one good person in the play, Jesse Eden. He's basically, you know, bedding and then extracting information and cheating on. Uh, uh, he's just felt morally at a low. And we really, we thought we wanted the end of the series to kind of be um, sort of exciting and rousing, but really indicate that. So that Laura Marling covered, um, it's a hard rain going to fall. It was like, yeah, because it's bad what's going on. But the... I was surprised that there weren't lots of people writing, God, I hate that guy now. Mm. And people are feeling rightly uneasy. And it's just so interesting knowing where the next, where the story goes from there. People are feeling uneasy about him, but you're still sticking with it because you're in his head. How much of the story do you know? So when Steve's writing, how much had he mapped out kind of series one to... Steve sort of, Steve, Steve's spoken in quite a lot of detail about what he imagines the final scene which, you know, gives you chills when you hear about it. And it's, again, got a beauty and a sort of inevitability to it. And then I think sometimes he maps out generally, but then he surprises himself. He writes in a... He's not a writer in this, anyway, though, where he puts up cards on a wall. You know, you should see him writing about it. It's, it's talking about it. It's very interesting. He said, if you do that, then it'll happen. Whereas if you just write, then unexpected stuff happens. What was the most unexpected twist for you watch, kind of watching Steve change his mind at, in series one to four? Mm. Was there anything that kind of just went completely off track? I mean, I think that there were some pretty crazy avenues in, in series three. 
I really do. I thought that was amazing. But, <laughs> but in terms of you thinking, you know, you not realize him not quite knowing where something was going to go and then changing it in the writer's room. Well, there's no, the writer's room is Steve's head. Well, yes, Steve's yeah. head, yeah. <laughs> um, and he doesn't, so you, so they come through, the scripts come through, it's like, wow, here we go. And, and re, but. So he I hasn't thought, sent the script <clears throat> to you and then, and then suddenly had an epiphany and changed something? No, not so much. He's, he's pretty clear how it all goes in. Mm. And I think that sometimes there's the, you know, he does a wonderful, actually most of the time he does a wonderful thing where things come together in that final episode and it's like a Turkish carpet is all sort of threaded in, in to, together. And suddenly, you know, if you think of the ends of, uh, I think every series, but especially series two and three, those stories all come together and, and sort of uh, play out almost at the same time in such a clever way. Is this the final series? Um, um, I'm not sure if I, I, I'm, I don't know if I'm actually, what's public about that? I don't think much is public about it. No, so I don't, uh, I'm not sure I can comment. <laughs> <laughs> okay, moving on. But what I can say is that Steve is a storyteller. Steve is a storyteller and storytellers don't want to stop telling stories, you know. Well, this is another question in terms of the industry at the moment is that these sometimes does it feel like series go on seasons go on too long Mm -hmm. that there are too many seasons in a series and when when we need restraint and just cap it end on a high do you find that the industry at the moment is commissioning too many seasons i don't think they are i think funny enough there's a move from netflix to to shorten series there's you know they've someone observed this i don't this isn't an edict but someone observed that they are they are tending to favor new series over series coming back they're cancelling a lot at the moment Mm. i think that i think that there's we've definitely benefited from having six hours in a series which isn't very much because if you think of you know the old what was on the networks whatever It'd be a series of 28, 20 episodes. That's a lot. And that's a, and even now, if you look at some series that are 10 or 12 episodes, one or two of those can be marking time. With six, you're kind of like, you know, two long films next to each other. It's not very much time at all. So Steve moves on. And I think the other thing he's done, which, again, he never said this is the format, but he does it. And it's wonderful. It's when he moves forward two years every time, there's a new moment in history. He finds wonderful things that... Are resonant in the history. That time between the wars is so resonant. Everything about it. It's interesting. Fascism, right, for the fifth series. I yeah, it's know. pretty interesting. Yeah, a, a charismatic politician with a uh, history's been kind to him. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, so there's so, so there's things to write about that he's passionate about. I don't think you'll you'll really see that in this next that next series. You'll see what he's you know, he's he's very very passionate. So I think that. You know, we would all know he would be the first to say, but but at the if moment it's extra- yeah. And I think that all, the other thing is that when you've got a writer like Steve, the the way to do it if you've got a suddenly a single lead is you have to just go deeper into that lead's head, and that's what Steve is prepared to do. And it's really full on because you're 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 becoming very very, you know, you can be introspective and you can see them do unpleasant things and so on and go to unpleasant places but if you're prepared to take that journey which he is then you won't get bored i think i think if it's something that's lighter a more more of a confection either it'll go forever because it's fun a fun convection or you'll tire of it well, that's what i'm noticing a lot on netflix is there are more and more kind of silly series like binge worthy series that mm-hmm. are they're, they're commissioning tons of them 
Yeah. I mean, maybe they're quite short, maybe the episodes, and they finish after two series. Mm. What, what is your, what is, what is, where's your head at in terms of... But Netflix also right do, but you know, they also, series one of House of Cards is one of the best things ever, and Orange is the New Black is... Oh, no, so, what, see, I felt know? that went on far too long. Oh, such a good show, though. It was. Even if those outstayed welcome, but they're such good series. But do you think anyone is really still watching? I'd be interested to see the stats. I don't, I don't, we'll, we'll, no, we'll never know. We'll never know, yeah. Well, I, I think I had enough after series four. Yeah. Um, because you don't really move out of the prison. No, but that, those characters are just wonderful. Yeah. Well, anyway, that's for, that's for <laughs> another day. But, but I do, you know, um, lots of experts and people within mm-hmm. the industry are saying there was the golden age of television. And now are we reaching peak TV? And mm-hmm. I mean, personally, as a, as a journalist who has to talk, write about television every week, I find myself kind of writing almost like chore lists of all the television I need to watch. And it's slightly overwhelming. And when I speak to my friends, they're like, oh, God, I've got, I've got to catch up on this, this and this. And it's too mm. much. And we're no longer, none of us are all watching the same thing anymore. We're all watching different things. We can't talk well, about it. I'm, well, I agree. And I, again, I think this is the great thing about, I, I would just recommend to everyone, just let's do short series, everyone. You know, yeah. because find out when we started, Karen as an American was like, we want to do long series because that's how you get inside people's heads. What you want to do is get inside people's heads. Well, actually, six is great. And that's just, that's not too much. That's not, you know, you can binge a series in a weekend if you want to. It's it's these long 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 series that that that, that will kill us. Yeah. And I think that concentrate. And I think the other thing for all of us is really concentrating on quality, if possible. And you probably see a lot of stuff that you would rather not would rather unsee. It's a lot of wasted space. You know? Yeah. But that's the thing. It's just, if it's quality, if you really feel look, it's like all sorts of writing. Have you got something to say? Because it's writing's hard. Well, you know, this is a writing um, Well, yes. Well, I mean, that's the ideal, but that doesn't mean there's a lot of bad writing just being pumped out all the time for, mm. um, well, for traffic. And, and I think, I suppose now that we've got so much data and everyone is so hooked to the algorithm and slaved mm-hmm. to the algorithm, people, I guess that's why they're commissioning so much because they know so much about their viewers. They can kind of cater to every mm-hmm. taste now. But that. Well, I think the other thing, actually, and then again, this is something I feel pretty old-fashioned about, is is this idea of level of engagement because I'm I'm so used to TV's on and you're watching it or you're not watching it, but actually, there's a kind of you know, wow, we do everything we can, believe me, to make sure when you're watching Peking, you're really watching it, and all the lights off are off and all that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But 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 um. But there are other sorts of, of, of TV that, that you'll have on and you'll all be talking over or you'll be eating and, or you'll be on the computer at the same time. And I don't know too much about that level of engagement personally, but I think that that's, that might explain some of the different kinds of show that we're seeing because there's the kind of semi-engagement show out there, isn't there? Yeah. I've certainly seen, you know, the kind of heavily genre stuff where you sort of know what's going to happen. It's appeared at a few places. But you know you don't need to listen to every line. That that exists too. So, so you so you're not worried about where television is going right now. I got to, you have to be an optimist and think that people will will will. Um, I'd be I, I'm more worried about other genres to be honest, like books. You know. Yeah. Because it's it's bad when you get on a train and people just, everyone's looking at TV, not yeah, looking at books. Yeah, everyone's downloaded things you to watch on the tube. Because mm. TV doesn't exist without all literary forms it's it's not a thing on its own it's, you know it's a medium that kind of 
I'm not saying just about book adaptations either. Um, Do you but worry I think if you'd been pitching Peaky Blinders <clears throat> to the BBC now, you would have found it as easy? Oh, definitely would have been harder. I think if it was a, it definitely would have been harder. I think we'd have got there, but it would have been um, just because people. It, and also, I think that there's a real thing now of that first episode has to really grip you. Mm. Um, and obviously, you need to do something to grip people, but you can't just reach for the same bag of tricks every time. So the tricks that work brilliantly in that, you know, if we, in terms of working with writers, if you study The Sopranos, House of Cards, Breaking Bad, those three pilots especially, I mean, they're extraordinary. And they all have a lot of things in common with each other. But, um, you know, our pilot was, I thought, so beautiful, but but it's uh, that everything unfolded intentionally in a certain way. And you'd be worried about that now because everything is, is fast, got to get people literally addicted in that first hour. So I think it's hard. Uh, you talk about studying The Sopranos. How, how much of your earlier career, I suppose, was spent studying pilots and learning from the all best? Of, well, it's always, I'm, all, we're always studying still. <laughs> what have you studied recently? Well, well, that's a good question. In terms of recent... Mm, well, I'll have to think about. I'll have to. I'll genuinely have to think about that. When you study it, do you write notes? Well, when we when the the ones that were the ones that I cited the, the, by study, I mean really think about well, how do, how come this works? I mean, you study everything in a sense, but with these ones, they work so well, and they work not to a formula, but you can observe. You know, when I was I did A level music, and you have to write Bach chorales. I remember saying, well, these aren't rules, you know, no parallel fifths, no parallel octaves. They're not rules, they're observations of what Bach didn't, tended not to do or didn't do. And this is the same thing. You're not looking at, no one's written a rule book, because, but, 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 but they do really interesting things that, that obviously work in terms of setting up a whole a character and a world. By, that, by the end of that first episode, you know you're interested in the character, you know what the world is, you know what it's about, you know you've got a good sense of a number of relationships that's hard to do in an hour mm. and they do it in a very very particular way each of them be really interesting you'll see similarities well i don't want to go into the whole thing but and peaky the peaky pilot does it in a way that i don't know whether steve was doing it through his head i imagine so it's just a sort of storytelling because you don't want it to be too you don't really ideally want to say here's the here's the um you know what you've the beats you've got to hit because then it become formulaic that's why they're more a more observations and then it's exciting to look at something which seizes your attention that doesn't do that peaky aside i mean studying the americans by the way which is miles i know i'm not the last person on earth to watch it but that's been interesting because we're so in our development interested in a single lead you know where everything is i'm i'm seeing it through tommy's head and if you look at most of those stories all of those stories either he's in the room or you're kind of talking about him or you're thinking about him and every story is eventually going to go land on his lap. Um, and the Americans is interesting because they're genuinely two leads and they're returning. And uh, But it works brilliantly. The Sopranos is, is generally credited as having kind of changed television mm -hmm. forever. Is that something you agree with or is there another show that for you has just kind of changed the way you thought about your career? It's not... Um, I think that there were some, I loved some dramas, but I found some dramas quite boring. And I found watching, well, actually not Buffy, but that Joss Whedon show Firefly, 
it's just it was just so inventive and so intelligent and so fun that was a real eye opener that something could be so much fun and good <laughs> and then actually the shield was mm. is something that i got as more addicted to than the sopranos and again there the it, there was a speed to it that was so extraordinary that um and uh it was always surprising so, Jamie, let's now um, go back to your career beginnings mm-hmm. for the last uh, segment of the of the episode. Ha- when was producing uh, an idea that you had as a young man? Well, I don't think I knew what a producer did for quite a while, and actually until I had a job in, in TV. But I knew... I, I was very much into music, so I was very lucky. I, I studied English at university, but... Um, I was also in the college choir, which was all quite sort of... So um, you were at Oxford? Yes, and so as the choir chorus, you'd sing every day. And uh, then I went to, on after that, to sing for two years at Christ Church, and I got involved a bit in drama and you know was in a band and all of that sort of thing. It was really good fun. What kind of band? Um, it was Latino oh. funk. Yeah, it was pretty good. Some amazing musos in it, actually. I was just on percussion, by the way. You would I was have done just well like now. Uh, Latinos, totally yeah, in vogue. But um, uh, but the event, What was great about I would say about um, singing in a choir is that it was that sort of like art every in a church in your day. It was, it's a very uh, heightened artistic experience where you're hearing incredible music. You know, Thomas Tallis, William Byrd. You know. Um, and you see how that moves people. And you also, sometimes you have to sing in funerals and sometimes you sing in weddings. And you see how a very tangibly music and arts can touch people and be meaningful. And I think that was a, a, a massive thing because I, I think that's, that, that'll go through all artistic experiences. And to have that, that understanding has been a real privilege. Um, and then almost as if to go the opposite way, uh, I managed to get an early job on a chat show called Light Lunch with Mel and Sue. And I literally was there. I'd been asked to photocopy for two weeks work experience. This was after university. Yeah, after university. And um, and uh, and I was just very, very keen and ended up staying at that company for four or five years. It was called Princess Productions and the bosses were Henrietta Conrad and Sebastian Scott and they'd both worked on the big breakfast and they were really sort of geniuses at that sort of live tv which there isn't much of at the at now that that kind of experience of you're watching live and a sense of anything can happen and they had managed to kind of grow a a a team of such creative sort of day producers and writers it was extraordinary to be part of it and a total eye-opener because also when you see sort of silly it's kind of essentially silly stuff you, you underestimate how much work goes into it and they would be saying drumming into you how how important the details are how important actually all the facts are right and you know um so it was a it couldn't have been i couldn't have been luckier to be at that time and to have had that experience and then also reminding yourself how entertainment's really good yeah <laughs> and entertainment's really serious and you want to what you want to be entertained and um and then i worked on a kind of much maligned you know a few years later I worked on a much maligned show called the 11 o'clock show which was you know I did one of the later series which frankly isn't you know terribly distinguished but wow I worked with amazing people on it it's this producer called Phil Clark and wonderful writers and and what was your um, title at this point I was a producer 
And so a producer in entertainment, you're sort of, you're, you're there, you're, you're in charge of really the script and how it's going to run on the night. You speak, um, if you're a day producer, you're more, you know, on a show that comes on every night, you're thinking, okay, this is what Tuesday night's show. If you're the series producer, you'll have had all the bigger conversations about, you know, what are the graphics? What's the set going to look like? Who are we going to be? Our, who's going to be our host and so on? So you sort of gradually move up. Entertainment had a lovely structure where you would start as a runner and you would slowly go up a quite a structured ladder, actually. What's the ladder like? For me, it was a runner and then a, like a kind of junior researcher. So to start with, I was making tea and running errands and then being in the phone room. And then the next thing I had to do was brief the guests when they came in to light lunch. So briefing is sort of you say to them, well, these are the questions they're going to ask and you just want to check that they're happy with that and they've got interesting answers because, if you know, you don't want to have a kind of dead air. So, you, you know, it's a sort of negotiation, really. Um, and um, and then, then to research a junior researcher where you're finding out about the guests and maybe helping work out what happens in the show up to a AP, associate producer, assistant producer, where you're doing the same kind of thing but similar and then a day producer and then a series producer so that evolution I was very lucky took me four or five years so how old were you when you became series producer well something good happened digital TV yeah. ITV2 happened and this uh, princess had a show uh, on ITV2 before anyone had heard of ITV2 and it was a daily entertainment show and it was tightly budgeted we're in a whole new world and the producers on Light Lunch, who were all quite grand and amazing, were would be too expensive. So a lot of us people who are AP level were told, okay, now you're day producing. So that was an amazing baptism of fire where, you know, on a show that uh, no one has heard of now, actually a lot of people worked on that. You know, the, um, the original series producer went off to Hollywood and he's written on incredible blockbusters. One of the writers writes for Anton Deck, another producer's Sunday Brunch. It was an amazing group of really inspirational people to be with. And where were you for, based at this point? That was in London. And and you were how old? 20? For, uh, sort of 30. You were 30. And, and how easy was it to live in London as a, as a kind of producer learning the ropes? Uh, it's tight and I was lucky to have family in London but it's tight I think it was it's probably tighter now and I think it's it's probably the worst for people coming into the world the key thing is for people coming into the world the key thing is let's say you want to be a runner where are you going to be a runner because that almost sets you on a bit of a course if you're a runner in a post-production house that means you're going to slowly world go to worlds of editing or if you're a runner on a film set it means you kind of be, you know, out and about and who knows where that'll lead. If you're a production runner on an entertainment show, then there's a structure and, you know, uh, that I knew I wanted to do the writing that a producer does in an entertainment show and, and so on. So suited me very well. And it was a totally new experience. I was just frankly just happy to be working in anything on telly because it feels like a world that's very difficult to get into. And it, it is it's class extremely something you were aware of when you started working there and, and how much has that shifted? I would say, broadly speaking, and I can't, don't know, because I've had a very strange and fortuitous um, series of movements from entertainment to comedy entertainment to comedy to drama. 
I wouldn't. I, I like all those genres equally, and they're all equally tricky to do and equally magnificent. But I would say, by and large, drama is sort of a bit posher, and entertainment is more mixed and open, which gives it a real energy as well. By the way, yes, there is still that snobbery against kind of low comedy and easy comedy. Would you say? Mm. Well, obviously not from me because yeah. I've, I've done late night Channel Five shows that were real uh, eye openers, but and not from Karen, who also has mm. done you know entertainment shows. For you know, Karen produced a number of comedies, Third Rock from the Sun and Roseanne and so on back in the day, and um, and before that, entertainment shows. So actually, not and and I think the pleasure for me of something like Peaky is it's. Um, I think that there's real sort of high art and poetry in the script and wonderful social satire. And, uh, but there's also, you know, sex violence and rock and roll. So it's a sort of high and low mm. put together, but hopefully avoiding the middle. And how did you go from series producer to then working on the IT crowd? That was, um, I worked on a sketch show. So... I was lucky enough to know someone who'd worked on a on the series one of a sketch show called Manstroke Woman, which had Nick Frost and Amanda Abington and, and so on. The first series had gone out, that series producer had left, and I was really fortunate to be asked to go to, to see it produce the second series. I, I knew one of the crew and I'd done um, you know, various other comedy shows and they felt they could do it. I could do it. I knew the production manager. She she felt How important that, was kind of having a network and <clears> contacts. I think by that point, if you've worked on shows that have lots of people, the network makes itself. Right. I don't know if I'm a great believer in networking because actually it really comes down to, oh, I've worked with them. Yeah, uh, they would be, I'd like to work with them again. That's a, and that's sort of just being, and you need to not be in t- just doing that, but that's, that's sort of, I can understand that network rather than trying to go and make connections without actually proving yourself to them. But And I think that's the, you know, someone once described it as being a bit like being in a game of poker. As long as, you st- as, long as you're sitting at the table, you're in the game. Just <laughs> do not stand up and walk away from the table, you know? Do you remember your first kind of massive cock-up and how you learnt from that? Yes, I do, yeah. What was it? God, you look quite it was terrified doing a, about it. It was doing a, I'm not going to name the names. It was doing a, with some wonderful presenters and the BBC had um, done a script for the promo and they said, Jamie, you go and you can like produce the promo. And the, and the presenters, I was a bit too junior for that job. And, and the presenters were like, come on, let's just ad lib it. And what you should do as a producer is say, well, ad lib all you want, but I need to have a good copy of the script first. I need to have a version of those lines as per script. And I didn't do that. And and that horrible feeling that you've just spent a day and lots of money has been spent and you didn't get out, get what you were supposed to get, sort of is, I feel a bit sick thinking about it, to be honest. <laughs> you look nauseous. Yeah, it was awful. <laughs> and then I was like properly told off as well. Oh, God. fair. You know, but it's a, but it's a fair. I was deserved to be properly told off. But it's, I suppose, look, I mean, a lot of, as, as with anything, it's like a performing arts thing. Everyone's got quite strong characters. Everyone's got strong wills. And so, you know, it's managing that and managing your own self and, and negotiating between everyone so that you, you know, get where you need to be. Um, on, the IT, uh, on the IT crowd, obviously the humour was at some points 
riskier than perhaps anyone could get away with now. I'm thinking of the um, uh, trans woman episode mm -hmm. about April, the yeah. transgender woman, um, which was kind of, I, I'm too young to... No, remember the reaction at the time. <laughs> Actually, I didn't produce that series. I produced series two, but I'm oh. sure that had equally risky things. But yeah, it was. Um, so how 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 much are you kept awake at night, kind of thinking about whether you're whether you might court controversy with anything that you've produced or worked on? Um, I have. I think that if you're, I think you could be kept awake at, at night about. I've, I think I've had pretty much good fortune not to be involved in something like that. There's things involving members of the public that I really now see that that's just so morally grey. Well, especially now in the post-Jeremy Kyle era. Yeah, and I think that everyone understands that now. And I think that, 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 that that'll all change. And I think... So there are definitely things that will look very, very different. And... Um, to be honest, there's so many things that keep me awake at night already about what's going on now uh, that, I, that I'm, I haven't got space to be kept up. But I'm sure I would be kept awake at night by lots of stuff in the past, frankly. Um, because, you know, if I think Peaky Blinders hasn't had this issue, but Poldark, for instance, was um, hugely criticised for the rape scene in which mm. um, the, the, the woman was like sort of turned on by it, was too into Well, it. now that is a really interesting one because... We have often had that discussion of violence and we've we've really gone very consciously into not making any sexual violence salacious. Although, right. listen, there's there's a lot of violence in the show because it's about violence. And, and Steve's always been careful right from the beginning to show consequences of violence in every way. The whole show is about the consequence of violence. And I think one of the really interesting things is that up to... Not long ago, Tommy Shelby was like, I managed to get away. I managed to close a door on it. And he says that to Arthur, just do what I did. And then there, we, there he is at the end of series four, breaking apart. And um, so I think because it's about, because the theme is the consequences of violence. Having said that, there's always going to be moments where you go, was this too explicit? What moments are you thinking of? Um, well, I think that I'm really happy with where it ended up, but we had we all, all had big conversations of when Polly tries to get her son out of the jail, and um, and Campbell says, "Well, yeah, on one condition." That felt because they acted it so well, it felt like it, it was just un, a stunning scene. But it felt that actually, it felt it, you know that scene in an early cut was really quite long and utterly brilliant. But it felt appropriate to cut it down in the context. You know, context is so much as well, isn't it? Of in the context of, I'm I'm tuning in and the show, and it's got you know rock and roll playing and everything. So, I think those are the uncomfortable moments. That's an example of an uncomfortable moment that you you know we just discussed very openly. And I think one of the great things about the show is um, it's not just me exec producing. There's me and Karen and Steve and. In this series, David Mason and different series, other other exec producers. So it's been ones that we've talked about as a group, which has been great because then you, it's been a very open conversation. And BBC have been fantastic as well. Now, what's next for you? Have you ever thought about writing? No, I think the next thing, which I would love to tell you about, but I can't, would be 
It's really to get a show like, uh, have another program like Peaky Blinders, not in terms of how it's, you know, success, because who knows if you'll ever have that again, but just in terms of something where you think that's a really interesting, I, I feel, you know, people use words for about TV, like ambitious and, and daring and whatever. Do you know what the best word is interesting? <laughs> because what I really want to come, I want to watch a movie where you come out and you go, wow, I've got a lot to think about. I, that's given me a shit ton to think about. And I'm really interested to think about that's going around my head. And, um, and, uh, and also I'm entertained by it. So, it, you know, always aiming for entertaining shows, however serious they are. Um, and, and aiming for something that's really interesting. So that's, sort of most are slate and we've got a few things that are getting closer and closer but can that you, will be can the, you tell um, us what's been announced what's been well we're, we're developing this incredible book uh when we were orphans by ishiguro katsu ishiguro and that's with the wonderful um director and writer called anthony chen um and he's got a collaborator writing called christine ong and um that that'll be really special he's done a movie called ilo ilo which won the camera door I think at Cannes right. a few years ago and he really is something and sitting in a room with him and uh, Katsu Shiguro and talking about what this project could be and Ishiguro is the most modest and intelligent and full of integrity person you could possibly imagine and funny um, you know you saw wow there's a lot of potential there so that's exciting and um, you know the wonderful Danny Brocklehurst has written a script called Dirty which is um, in development uh, with Sharon Horgan attached and that's kind of rip-roaring and provocative and I think we'll talk a lot about the kind of ethical challenges that face us all big and small and uh, yeah it's wonderful. And we're kind of reaching our time limit mm -hmm. now but and it's just a difficult question but if you could look back over your career be that um, working on Peaky or the IT crowd, your fondest, most, kind of most memorable moment. What is it? Um, on set. On set. <laughs> well, I don't want. To, I mean, there, there was a fond moment. I can tell you, watching, watching some of the episodes come together on Peaky, because the edit process is fascinating. And watching some of those come together and, and then seeing the music work and seeing everything drop into place is always extraordinary. And that's the result of so many people working so hard. So I would never claim credit for it, but to be there when it all comes together mm. is just extraordinary. And then to see it play out with an audience is extraordinary. Then, you know what? I had so much fun on you know one of the one of the early jobs on Light Lunch because that was live. And to go live was every day for whatever 60 80 episodes was just the best thing and the mood on that everyone was young everyone seemed to be below 30 mel and sue were just the best fun in the world it was it was a ride it was great do, do you kind of miss the potential for things to go comically wrong live i wish that i would love live tv is great and there should be lots of it and that's something that you know you won't get so much on the SVODs. it's it's a wonderful wonderful thing and it's you know it's a bit like a sitcom you know, I got to tell you, working on the IT crowds with an audience, that was extraordinary as well. It really was, and and to hear that writing then be enlivened by an audience, and I, I hope that it, we never get to the point where a show with a studio audience is looked upon as really, really old-fashioned. We're sort of nearly, 
there now, but it's a great medium. It really is because it encourages the writer. It's like a challenge to the writers. Can you do this? And and then when the writers like Graham can rise to that, and when you feel that energy from an audience, that it's not it's not about telling the people at home where to laugh, but it is sharing an experience. It's very very cool. And people often say the best way to kind of sharpen your skills as a writer or as a producer mm-hmm. is to start with comedy. Do you agree with that? Comedy is great. I I definitely agree with that. I think that's a, I think that en- entertainment is words that isn't taken seriously enough you know it's just it's so great to be entertaining and I, I see actually lots of people now are making very very entertaining dramas if you look at what's on so there's people are really going for it which is fantastic and there's none of the sense of the problem with theater wonderful as a it is is that you've got your captive audience whereas in in a world of entertainment people will switch off entertainment telly and I see you know uh I think that's a really vital aspect. You've really got to earn it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, on that note, Jamie, thank you very much for speaking with Always Take Notes. And Thank you so much for having me. Hello, it's us again. Now, I'm going to own to the fact that I haven't at this stage listened to the Jamie Glowsberg interview. We never listen to each other's separate interviews. I, on several occasions, have listened to yours. We've never listened to <laughs> I actually haven't. No, I did listen to Christina Lamb. But you've told me it's really good. Uh, um, I'm sure that's true. (laughs) It is. Uh, So how how was was Jamie? He was great. We bonded over our love of copious. I think he went through something like six mugs of tea over this one hour interview. He was a true Englishman. Um, And yes, he was very charming, very uh, self-deprecating and uh, as with many of these very successful people that we interview felt like he hadn't quite made it yet okay but obviously he has did you contribute to that feeling Ali? Did you? <laughs> I, did, I told him to get a grip um yeah i thought it was i'm, I'm very interested in the moment at the moment in peak tv because okay. i feel as a culture writer and someone who has to watch a lot of tv for my job that it's just overwhelming and there's too much and too many series and tv shows go on for far too long um, but not everyone gets sent home for four days to watch all of Game of Thrones back to back. That's true. But when do you ever feel like you're watching the same television show as your friend? You're always watching different things on different streaming sites. When do we ever? When television used to be a shared experience. Interesting. And it hasn't been a shared experience since Bodyguard, and there wasn't a shared experience before that. I don't know. Bodyguard. I remember Bodyguard was really surprising because everyone was watching it. And it was so great to go into the office and have something to talk about that wasn't work over a cup of tea. Um, the only shared experience is Love Island, really, every year. I don't watch Love Island. Don't have I? you ever watched Love Island? I think I've seen like a bit by accident, like, <laughs> like in a pub or something. Uh, um, anyway, anyway, this what has have you been, been? What have I been doing? Well, I was going to ask you a personal question. I think we should save that for the next episode. Um, Why? Because we have to record an extra for that as well. <laughs> okay, we don't have that much to say. All right. Stretching our material. Anyway, this has been um, Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Akam. And me, Eleanor Halls. Our producer is Nicola Keane. Our social media is by Zara Hankier. And our graphic design is by uh, James Edgar. Our score is by Jess Danheiser. And if you'd like to find us on Instagram, we're at Take Notes Always. No, we're not. No, we're always not. Take, take notes. notes. And on Twitter, we're on Take Notes Always. Uh, And please do leave a review, rate and subscribe on iTunes. And think about contributing to our crowdfunding page on Patreon, which is patreon.com slash always take notes. Many thanks. Bye.